In our study of God's Word, you know we're in Luke's Gospel, so take your Bibles if you would, and let's return to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Whenever somebody uh, tells me, some unbeliever that I'm talking with tells me that they're skeptical of, of the things that I believe or something about the gospel or something about Christ, some area of truth, there are, of course, a lot of um, arguments that I could make. There are defenses that I might give. I need to be ready to, to help them see the inevitable end of their worldview. I know their worldview is wrong. I know it is uh, a, a result of the fallenness of their mind and their reasoning because we're born corrupt. And having been born corrupt, our minds are fallen. And as uh, our beloved Dr. Zemeck continues to remind us, there's this what he calls a homardiological hangover, the sin hangover. It, it affects everything we think as unbelievers. And so whenever I'm talking with an unbeliever, I already know their worldview is unsound. And if I can help them push it to its uh, inevitable result, maybe they will end up despairing of their condition and come to the truth. But Despite any defenses I might make, the best thing to do when someone has some skepticism about the truth is to take them to the scriptures. Read the scriptures, pour over the scriptures, seek God in the scriptures, pray and ask the Lord to open your mind to the truth of the scriptures. It is the Bible itself, the very thing they doubt, to which they must turn if they're going to have any hope, I can make all kinds of defenses and I need to be ready with the truth. But, but very often in my giving of a defense, I might default to my way of saying it. What I really need to do, having said all I can say, is to make sure that they know exactly what God says and how he says it. In the context in which he says it. That is the most important thing. Because if I know anything, I know this. To toy around with the scriptures is to toy around with your eternity. And that is where we find ourselves as Jesus continues to face off with those in the land, the religious elite of the land, the leaders of Israel, who were doing that very thing. They had often toyed around with the scriptures because they had a contempt for the truth. They esteemed the things of the earth. They esteemed the glory of men. They loved to sort of pass glory from themselves to their peers and back. And in so doing, appeared righteous, but behind the scenes, they loathed the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth. They toyed around with it. They bent it to fit their life and their sins and their wickedness. And Jesus is ever and always calling them out for it. Why? Because he knew that they were toying with the truth. And to toy with the truth is to toy with your eternity. That is the issue. That is why he said it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. The reason we saw last time very clearly is that what God says comes forth from his own nature and therefore, everything he has revealed is truth by virtue of it coming from him, from his perfections, from his character. He can speak nothing else but truth. We saw last time as well that God is unchanging, and God is sovereign, and God's word is unchanging. And though the universe, which we visibly see, and we put sort of a, a security in because of its cycles that never cease to... to uh, be routine in our lives. We wake up every day and the universe is doing exactly what it had always done. It, it, there's a security we get in the known universe as we see it and study it. Jesus said, yes, that's true, that there's a security in that. But that's no security compared to God's word. In fact, heaven and earth will pass away. There will come a day when it will roll up. God will take it and completely reverse it and undo it. And it will go out of existence, uh, perhaps as fast as it came into existence. And in that day, God will create an entire new heaven, a new earth. Heaven and earth, as you see it and trust in it, will pass away. But that unfathomable event 
of a day when the known universe that you trust in goes by the wayside, that is a far simpler concept to fathom than to imagine that God's word would fail in something it declares. So you could sooner see the entire universe suddenly going out of existence than to see the smallest letter or mark of God's word fail, as we saw last time. We then looked at the implications briefly. The implication is to regard or treat any part of God's truth as flexible. That is to charge God with folly, to have said things he didn't mean, to be capricious in what he reveals, never intending, of course, to carry it out. This is what the Pharisees really in their very lives charged God with. They charged him with foolishness. They depreciated the law of God which he spoke, using it to their own advantage. They would twist God's word so that they could appear spiritually superior while deliberately ignoring various commands. We've seen it over and over again. And then they would hold God's people severely accountable to standards that they themselves refused to live. No wonder that at one point in Jesus' ministry, Mark 7 records it, he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it was written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He said, you neglect the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And was there an example he pointed out that Mark records in Mark 7? Yeah, they, they would say to others what God said in, in the Decalogue. Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. That was a law in Israel, capital offense for an incorrigible child who goes against his parents. But here's what the Pharisees said. Well, if a man says to his father or mother, anything of mine that you might have, that is korban. It was the word for given to God. I gave it all to God and dedicated all my resources to God. You no longer permit that person to do anything for his father or mother. Here God says, honor your father and mother, and you're telling them, hey, you know, it's korban. Everything we have is given over to the Lord. All you're doing is violating the command to honor your parents by using your resources for your own ends and changing the law of God and its interpretation, getting others to do the same. They loved money, but they pretended to serve God Jesus had said no one can serve God and money. They loved earthly power and earthly influence, but pretended to be about God's agenda. They loved being honored by mankind, but they pretended to be humble. And they loved to imagine that they were the most blessed by God because Israel regarded them as the spiritual giants, as the guides and counselors of the nation. So that's how they saw themselves. We are the most highly favored by God. What was the proof? Our status among men, our wealth, our pedigree, and our authority to dictate the standards for God's people. How wrong they were, Jesus said. You know what his rebuke was? You men imagine that the law is yours to redefine and to toy around with, but you had sooner see the known universe go out of existence than to imagine the scriptures is yours to twist to your advantage. Beloved, that is why the next thing Jesus does is tells this story. In verses 19 to 31, Jesus tells this story to vividly illustrate the shock that will come to all those who refuse to believe what God says. This story is an exclamation point that if they won't believe the scripture, they won't believe at all. Follow along as I read in 19 to 31. Now there was a rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried." In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, 
Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. And Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. This story sends the clearest possible warning about gaining the world and ignoring what God's word says about a coming day of reckoning. The fundamental message of this story is what I said earlier. You toy around with scripture, you're going to toy around with your eternity. Now, a brief word about whether this story depicts the real lives of two people or whether it's simply another parable. Just recall for a moment as we've talked through the Gospel of Luke what a parable is. A parable is an illustrative story by which a a familiar idea is set alongside an unfamiliar idea in such a way that the comparison helps people better understand that which is unfamiliar. So in other words, it makes a point about something you might not grasp, but it does so with scenarios that are familiar to you, familiar ideas, familiar concepts, familiar contexts, if you will, with familiarized people and stereotypes in the story in order to be analogous or parallel to some principle you wish to drive home. Parables uh, invariably do drive home one singular principle, even though some of the details are always interesting. For example, when Jesus would say that the blind lead the blind, they're blind guides, a blind man trying to guide another blind man and both fall into a ditch. What's the point? Look, if you don't correct your own life, you're going to be hard-pressed to correct other people's lives. So a parable sort of illustrates what is unfamiliar or perhaps not seen clearly in order to demonstrate to people clearly what the principle is that they need to think about. So the main point in a parable is fairly simple, and they're meant to be easily grasped by those, listen, who sincerely are interested in knowing and following the principle gleaned from the story. If you're teachable, and you're humble, and you have a heart of pliability before God, the principle becomes clear. For anyone, however, who does not have ears to hear, in other words, those who have no sincere interest or faith to grasp the lesson, then the parable becomes sort of veiled. It becomes blind, it, it, it blinds you to its reality. You remember when the Pharisees had rejected the authority of Christ, Matthew 13 says he started to speak in veiled stories, parables with a veiled principle. It was veiled to them. It wasn't veiled to the disciples, it was veiled to them because they did not have eyes to see, eyes of faith, ears of pliability. So is this story a parable or does it recount what really happened? Well, it opens with the kind of language Jesus used when he clearly spoke in a parable. He says there was a man. It's also set in the afterlife in its context, at least largely. So if these two are actual people who lived at the time, the details would be completely unique in scripture. We don't have anywhere in scripture anything about Um, what's happening in the afterlife other than judgment in the prophecy of John's apocalypse Uh, and we see a new heaven and new earth unfold. Paul told the Corinthians that it's never entered into the mind of man or the imagination all that God has prepared past the threshold of death. So nowhere else in the word of God that we know of are heaven and hell remotely like what's described here Uh, People in heaven and hell seeing each other and talking to one another, making requests of people in heaven. Uh, Seems to me those concepts are wholly unfamiliar in scripture 
And, and so, again, the language opening the parable or the story seems to be parabolic, and the concepts here are unique. Some might say, then, why the specific names of individuals in the story? Well, it seems clear Jesus isn't going to allow the Pharisees to claim that the story doesn't relate to them. He doesn't want them bypassing its importance and its pointedness for them. So you see in here Father Abraham. What is that? That's a clear implication that the wealthy man is Jewish and he's part of Israel's elite. So in the story, he is a parallel to the Pharisees and how they treat the world here and now. And he just confronted them on being lovers of money. And he also mentioned Moses and the prophets, tying the story here to verse 16, when he said to them, will you read the prophets and Moses? So it seems to me this is very pointed toward the Pharisees, so therefore Father Abraham is mentioned. It seems most likely that this story is not about real people, but a parable about the the heart-stopping shock that comes to those who ignore God's warnings about loving this world. It is about unbelief. It is about loving hypocrisy and the heartless selfishness that results as you love this world and consume this world for yourself. And what you're going to find at the end of your life is that that hypocritical way of life, that love of the world, has a shocking result. Especially if you're religious in it. Especially if it's spiritual hypocrisy, you will never expect where you're going to end up. It's almost like when Jesus was preaching in Matthew 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have you ever read that passage and just been shocked? How could people get to the throne of grace shocked? Well, he, they, they said, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he said, depart from me. I never knew you, you lawless ones. No, you didn't do these things in my name genuinely. You named my name. You appeared spiritual. You attached yourself to God's people. You might have even quoted his word prolifically. But in here, you're lawless. You love the world. You love the things of wickedness. Jesus gives them a shock here. The next life for them will be the polar opposite. So let's see how this unfolds. If you're taking notes, the first point simply will be this. Opposite lives on earth. Opposite lives on earth. Verse 19, there was a rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. So let's, let's look first at the wealthy man, the one side of the contrast. First of all, notice that he loves his status. He habitually dressed in these things. The verb here carries the idea that it, he made it his habit of life to put on himself these things. It's, it's a verb that has um, a particular voice to it that, that is what we call a middle voice. He does this for himself, to himself, with the results coming back on himself. This is his fashion. He dresses himself to look like the wealthy and important. He loved the status that it gained him to live like he lives. He loved his reputation. He loved how he lived in the community and how he was looked upon by others. He loved the, the way that people thought he was important. He was really somebody. He was in love with his own significance. We all know this is a human plight. We love to have a reputation. And often it isn't that we want a good reputation for the honor of Christ by doing what is righteous. Sometimes we just want a good reputation because we don't want people to see what's behind the reality of our life and our weaknesses and infirmities. But worse, we get in these habits of loving significance and promoting ourselves and wanting others to view us a certain way. We can even act like the unbelievers spoken of here. And maybe it's our achievements and trophy cases we talked about. Maybe it is our bank account. Maybe it is where we live and what we drive and those kinds of things. Those may be uh, rather mundane, extended examples of the problem here. But you get the point. This man habitually makes himself important by looking the part, dressing the part, the fashion of the wealthy and the significant. And he loved it. He habitually dressed himself in it, the purple, the fine linen. 
And he not only loved the status that it gave him, but he absolutely loved in his heart of hearts his luxury, joyously living in the splendor every day. He gloried in lavish excesses that came with a luxurious life. It isn't about personal comfort merely. It's about his love of it. God gives us all kinds of things that are uh, comforting. And, and most nations would say that our country is luxurious from its inception and never been anything other than luxurious. Of course, we're a wealthy nation. God has done that and allowed us to do a lot of things in it. But clearly, our problem is idolatry. And we take even the good things in the common grace of God and misuse them. This guy is the epitome, however, of glorying in the lavish excesses of his luxurious life. He loved his ease. He loved his luxury. Why? Why did he love it so much? Because as with all resources in abundance, we are tempted to take security in them. We think they make us secure. You know the euphoria you feel when that unexpected amount of resource comes in for a moment and suddenly the pressure is off and the blood rushes to your head in excitement. You get a little lightheaded when some windfall happens that you didn't expect. Why? Because you don't have a care about the things that you were burdened about just a few moments ago. And if that goes on long enough, you will be tempted to find your security ultimately in excess. This man doesn't have a care in the world. For him, he's living his best life. This is it. He's not thinking anything beyond living this life to the fullest. Nothing. If someone came along and cautioned him to think about what happens after we die, he, he literally would laugh in their face and point to his current extravagant circumstances. Are you kidding? There's no reason to worry about anything in the future. Caution to the wind, my friend. I have it all. I have money. I have influence. I have status. Physical vitality. And every comfort and convenience my wealth can buy. You remember what Solomon said when he was at his time, the richest king in the world. He said, I tried it all. I tried the money. I tried the influence. I tried the status. I tried the physical vitality. I tried the pleasures. I tried the aesthetics. I tried cultural aspects. I tried it all. I spared no expense. I spared no time. I plunged myself into it as deep as anyone could who owns the world. And he said in Ecclesiastes 12, when all is said and done, all that is chasing wind, it never satisfied. When all is said and done, fear God and keep his commandments. Because God has so worked through the common graces of man's existence that men might fear him. All those warnings about scripture, or in scripture about trusting in the things of this world. Those little parables about gaining the whole world and losing your soul. Those statements about our lives being a vapor so that we should let go of what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. There are, there are temptations to not believe a word of it when God says it. We don't really believe that. And after all, if the verses seem straightforward, your life's a vapor, we might say it with our lips because of its straightforward nature but we don't then turn around in our life and give room to glory in God alone. We, we leave room for spouting those verses off while at the same time having the things of this world and appearing spiritual with them. This man, Jesus says, massaged the meaning of all those scriptures until they flex enough to allow him to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to be spiritual, and yet he wants to live it up. He loved his status. He loved his luxury. By contrast, a poor man is mentioned. Verse 20, and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, 
covered with sores. Wow, this is different. He's laid at his gate. You, you thought maybe the story was going to unfold just in, in general about a rich guy over here and in general about a poor guy over here. And No, they're brought together at the property, at the estate. And what we note first about the poor man, by contrast, is that he has no earthly hope. In fact, he's named Lazarus. That is a deliberate um, naming of a person in a story, a fictitious story, by the Lord Jesus Christ to demonstrate just how hopeless and destitute the man is. He's a beggar, and he's named um, a name which means that God alone is, is my help. That is the name, a derivative of Eliezer. God is my help. And if in naming him, Jesus lets us know that the rich man had everything on earth he could possibly want, it's clear then that this beggar has only the help of God. That's all he has. All the comforts of earth had abandoned him. No earthly hope. He also has no personal dignity or physical comfort. Notice he was laid at his gate covered with sores. The verb here is striking the way Jesus says it. He's dumped there. He's tossed there. This is not gently laid by some dear friends looking for help. If it were dear friends and family, if he had any of those, he wouldn't be laid at the gate of a rich man. He'd be in their homes getting the help he needs. He'd been thrown there. And it seems to imply that he was thrown at the palace entrance, which would have, in those days, had a huge courtyard with servants running around back and forth, serving the rich man and his excessive lifestyle hand and foot. And some townspeople brought this beggar to the palace. They were indifferent to him, tossed him there. They put him on the ground at the, what would have been probably the vestibule of the courtyard, He obviously can't walk. They had to carry him and toss him there. His illness, according to the story Jesus tells, is repulsive. He's got sores all over his body. They're open and no one wants to go near him. His poverty and his helpless condition just screams for someone to restore some dignity and bring some comfort here. The rich man's family, his friends... The house staff have to pass right by him the whole time unless he's removed. Why was he brought there? Look, the the rich man has the greatest opportunity here to step down from his own dignified pedestal. The rich man has the greatest opportunity here to demonstrate something of the heart of God, to set aside his own earthly comforts, to show that that there's a softness in him rather than this this love of money and love of power and love of worldly things while pretending to be spiritual and to know God. The rich man in the story has an opportunity here, a golden moment to reach below his own lap of luxury and demonstrate what God is like. In fact, because Jesus mentions the prophets later on, Moses and the prophets, In reference to the rich man, he should have known what the Old Testament had always said about compassion, about kindness, about reaching out, about meeting needs. By the time you get to the prophet Micah, you have some very poignant words, Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What am I going to come and worship God with? What is the right way to approach God in worship? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and with yearly calves? All the sacrifices, is that what the Lord wants? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Outlandish. He has told you, O man, what is good. He has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly and to love mercy. And he's told you what is good and what he requires of you. To walk humbly with your God, the prophet said. 
And Jesus makes an implication. He has Moses and the prophets. He ought to read what the fruit of the heart of God is like when it captures someone's soul, when they give their heart to the Messiah, when they give their heart to God to really lead his people. It doesn't end up in a love of the world, a love of money and influence and power and significance. No, conversion changes everything. You absolutely are attached to nothing To know Christ is to let it go. To know Christ is to want what he wants. When he gives you something and to see someone in need and you can meet it and you refuse, how is that the heart of God? In fact, 1 John 3 says that very thing. If you... Verse 17 says, if you see someone in need and you close your heart of compassion toward him, it doesn't mean you you take all that you own and you just dole it out. That isn't the point. The scriptures say, however, when you see someone in need and you could meet that need and it wouldn't really cost you much at all. But even if it was sacrificial, you can't close your heart of compassion toward someone and say you love God. Jesus just confronts the Pharisees. You don't love people because you don't love God. It's all about the world and the earth. You pretend to know God and teach others about God. And yet when we look at your life, you twist and mangle the scripture so you can do away with wives that burnt the toast. You do away with the commandments of God about mercy and compassion. James 2.13 said, Judgment will be merciless to one who shows no mercy. You even forget that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This poor man, by the way, was covered with sores, ulcers. They were were repulsive. They were on the outside. They had come to the surface, festering wounds. He had no hope. He had no personal dignity. He had no human comfort. Notice longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. He has no physical relief, and he has here no human comfort. He longs to be fed with the crumbs falling from the rich man's table, and besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his wounds. The Pharisees so completely loved the world that their contempt for the truth became obvious in how they treated people around them. They were cruel, unforgiving, arrogant, They lived in gross hypocrisy. How can they claim to know and love God when they were so deeply in love with all that is esteemed by men on earth? And in this story, Jesus depicts the problem. This beggar is dumped at the rich man's palace gate. He's just living it up. He's just imagining that his luxury is the result of how profoundly superior he is in every way to those around him. Say, Why does Jesus bring up the dogs in this story? That's kind of... We just want to go past that. It's yucky. Is that a word? Yucky? (laughs) Well, it is unexplained here, but it's most likely the common imagery of stray dogs scrounging around the outside walls of a place where there was an abundance of scraps, the excess food that the palace uh, would throw out. This would gather sort of the, the strays around town. And this beggar longs for some of the scraps, but he needs someone to bring them to him, and no one's bringing them to him. And he's not seeing himself as worthy of something better. He'd just like a few scraps to take away the hunger pains, and the stray dogs in the story are his only companions. He doesn't even have a human being who will stop and take the time to talk with him and find out who he is and find out what happened to him and what he needs. There's just no dignity, no hope, no human companionship. Nope, just dogs. Everyone can see it. There the dogs are. And they're the only relief for the sting of his wounds on his body. That is the contrast here. The opposite lives on earth that these two men are described as having. So that is why when the story turns to the afterlife, if you're keeping notes, your second point should be the shocking destinies beyond the grave. 
shocking destinies beyond the grave. Verse 22, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom or the center of Abraham's life and, and blessing. That would be the common way that they would think about that. And the rich man also died and was buried. So the contrast is set forth in the afterlife. Lazarus died in obscurity. <clears throat> there was no fanfare on earth. The story indicates no family at his deathbed, it seems. No children for his comfort surrounding his deathbed. No sight of loved ones weeping at the thought of him being gone. What a comfort that is to the aged who are finishing their life, to have family and friends around, and even family that weeps because they're going to be gone. It's wonderful to, to have been such a person, to be missed so desperately when you're gone. What a what a common grace and comfort that is in human life. He had none of that. And he had none of the, the joys of passing on an inheritance and seeing in the face of your, your children, your heritage, the, the joy of gaining something and having some security or even just a piece of your life given to them in an inheritance. He, he has none of that joy happening here. There's no formal goodbye at a funeral. I think that's deliberate on the Lord's part. He just died. There's no closure. No lasting legacy. He died in obscurity, but notice the rich man. He died with earthly honor. He was buried. Now The implication here is obvious to us that the rich man had everything at the end of this earthly life that the beggar had none of. That's the contrast. He would have had the, the lavish funeral, the big fanfare, the family at his deathbed, the children around to comfort him, the sight of loved ones weeping, the joy of passing on the estate, the formal goodbye at a funeral, no, no uh, sense in which it's just sort of going out of existence with no closure. This is absolute formal closure. Everyone knows about it. This is the man who had earthly honor, loved earthly honor, worked for earthly honor, and he received it. I remember one time being at a funeral, and the pastor that was speaking at the funeral was trying to make some point. I can't imagine what he was trying to say, but in the end, he ended up asking people, you know, would you like all these people at your funeral? Then then you need to live like that person. I thought, well, that's all you get then. It'd be a joy if you were going from that into glory. But to have 300 people at your funeral on your way to hell, that, that's, what difference does that make? None. This man died with all the earthly honor. But notice what happens. The poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham, this is the Jewish designation for heaven, paradise, the place where the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are enjoyed. Abraham is, in the Old Testament, the father of believers who stood at the head of the Old Covenant, and on the New Covenant, he is the prototype of faith. And being saved by faith, Romans 4 says. And so embedded in the mindset of, of that time was that disease and poverty, poverty were a sign of God's curse. And you would never be a part of the covenant if you were impoverished or a beggar because you were, you were cursed by God. Somehow you're outside of all of that. The Pharisees thought, well, because I have uh, Israel eating out of my hands as the spiritual leader, because I have all this wealth, because I have status and reputation and authority, then I must be blessed by God. You impoverished people who are diseased with sores all over your body, you clearly have been cursed by God. You remember that's what the disciples thought even when they were ministering with Jesus and they saw the man who had been blind from birth, John chapter 9, and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? That was the assumption. If your life looked like this beggar Lazarus, you couldn't possibly be in God's favor. You certainly weren't 
a part of the covenant. And yet Lazarus was born up to heaven by the angels. Man, when Jesus said that, the Pharisees must have cringed. The mention of Abraham here is highly offensive because it means that the beggar was in a place of intimate fellowship with God's blessing through Abraham, his father. It meant that he had the dignity and honor of eternal things, the heavenlies, the honor of God, the dignity of being a child of God, the eternal blessing of Abraham, the father of God's people. It means that this beggar had faith and trust in his God, in the Messiah, in forgiveness of sins through God alone, through the sacrifice. That's what it meant when Jesus said he was born by the angels. Stunning, shocking reversal. As one commentator said, this is an assault on their theological assumptions. And they were, he was delivered there by angels. <laughs> delivered to paradise by the angels, his messengers, the ones that serve God night and day, as the book of Hebrews says, the ones that are ministering spirits, the ones that are guardians of God's people, they came and bore him to glory. Well, here's the other half of the shocking reversal. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in the place of blessing. What? This is the guy who had it all. And he is in Hades. The Old Testament teaching on eternal punishment was clear, but not as specifically defined in the New Testament. Sheol was primarily the word for life after death. It's variously translated the grave and the pit and hell. NIV typically translates Sheol as the grave. Here you have the word for Hades. Hades is, of course, most closely associated with the Old Testament term Sheol, but sometimes it's translated grave and sometimes translated hell or the depths. It is the place of the dead. It is generally associated with the afterlife of the unbeliever. Regardless of whether someone might want to wrangle over the Old Testament saints and what they were doing until they are ultimately judged, here the word is used in this context to speak of the opposite of being in the blessings of Abraham. And torment is associated with it. So clearly he's talking about judgment. He's talking about hell, judgment. This is where this man went. Opposite lives on earth, shocking destinies beyond the grave. And this man is in the place where unbelievers go, and he is in torment. Word means he's in agony, he's in pain, torture, torment. This is exactly what the Bible teaches about hell. It is a place of torment. Deuteronomy 32, all the way back in the Old Testament, verse 22. A fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. God had always intended for judgment to be about torment, always. For those that reject him, there will be darkness, Job 10 says. Those in the grave don't know what's taking place on earth, Job 14 says. It's falsehood to believe that the wicked will escape God's just wrath by eternal punishment, Job 21 says. The Lord avenges his righteousness. Rise up, O judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve, Psalm 94. Isaiah 33, the sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who can dwell with everlasting burning? Isaiah 66, 24, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their work will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. When, when the new heaven and new earth are here, when Christ is on his throne in his, kingdom, his messianic kingdom, when righteousness dwells on the earth, there will be a loathing of any rebellion that came against God and a rejoicing that he vindicated his holy character. 
This is what the scriptures teach. And so, what a reversal here. What a shock. You loved this life here. You loved the things of this life here. Whatever you way in which you lived it, religious pretense or irreligious, you loved the things here, you lose your soul. You toy with the scriptures and what it says, you toy with your eternity. And an interesting thing unfolds here. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in the place of blessing. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. I need relief. The point here isn't the imagery of of whether or not one finger with one drop of water would relieve those in hell. The point is there is no relief. You're in agony, he wants relief, and there is no relief. Why? Verse 25, Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, that is the emphasis here, during your earthly life, you received your good things. What does he mean by that? That you had things to enjoy? No, that isn't a sin. Clearly that's not a sin. Abraham himself was wealthy. It's not a sin to have good things so that you're going to be punished if you have a lot here. His point is, in your lifetime, you received them. You brought them into your life as the pinnacle. They were the end for you. It was all you concerned yourself with. You loved it rather than God. You served money rather than your creator. You loved it and ignored what the scriptures say about trusting in it. Lazarus, whether he had things or not, and he clearly had nothing, but whether he had things or not, he's being comforted here and you're in agony. Why? Because he didn't trust in those things. He didn't love those things. Clearly he didn't. He was even willing to have a few scraps to relieve a few hunger pains. Never bitter at his God for his earthly circumstances. Why? Because like flowering grass, that stuff is here today, gone tomorrow. He never trusted in it. Lord, you can do with my life what you choose. I know that you are on your throne. I serve you. You don't don't owe me physical vitality. You don't owe me a trouble-free life, a disease-free life. You don't owe me a big paycheck and security on the financial end. You owe me nothing. I owe you everything, and I can pay nothing that would satisfy your righteousness. I need Christ. Do with me what you want. You do with my things what you want. Listen, beloved, I know how easy it is to get attached to what we have and to find security in it. You must never trust in it. Say, how do I know? Check your life. Will you sin to get something or sin to hold on to something? Then it is an idolatry. Let it go. Remove it. Or you're toying with your eternity. You say, well, I'm already saved. My eternity is secure. Then you're toying with your usefulness before the Lord. You're going you're gonna to not be as useful as you could be because all that stuff's crowding out your life. You're holding on to things that don't matter. You're, you're concerned and burdened and anxious and worrying about things that, that do not belong to us. That We are stewards of them. That's it. The unforeseen reversal is explained. You loved your good things. Lazarus, all he had were bad things, and he's being comforted here. You're in agony. Notice verse 26. It's unfixable. It's unreversible. It is what it is because of what happened in your heart on earth. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. Those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. There's the problem. It cannot be reversed. You toyed with your eternity. It's a permanent condition. You played around with it. You bent the truth. You wanted to have your cake and eat it too. You wanted religion and spirituality. And you wanted to love the things of this world. I don't care what it is. Do not find security in anything in this life. Its pleasures. Do not find it in its wealth. Do not find it in its cultural acceptance. Do not find it in its ideologies. In what you learn in the pagan universities. Do not trust in those things. Go back to scripture. 
Listen to what God says. Or the reversal may be a shock to you. I mean, you're a churchgoer. Do you know Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone? Have you repented of your sin and given your heart to him? Is there a manifest truth that is is that which your heart is inclined to? You love the truth. You don't love it as much as you should, but you love it. There's an inclination to want Christ, to follow Christ, to do what Psalm 84 said earlier, to want to praise him. Is there an inclination to let go of the things of this world? Is there a frustration and an agony before God at how often we do love the things of this life? If you're a believer, then make yourself useful by by pressing into that matter and never trusting in the things of the world that you enjoy. But if you're here and you have a spiritual pretense... Deep down, you just would never let go of any of those things for the Lord. There's going to be an unforeseen reversal that's going to shock you when this life is over. And we imagine that if somebody could just meet someone who saw that, you know, we have our TV shows, oh, we want to talk with the dead. Somebody says they're talking to the dead and bringing your messages from your relatives from the past. No, you're not. Those people are talking to demons if they're talking to anything beyond the grave. Demons deceive. There's no talking with your dead relatives. But this fool thought the same thing. Oh, if we could just hear from someone, then I'd be convinced. I'd be convinced. Really? Jesus rose from the dead. And for 2,000 years, he's still been hated by generations of people who love the world. He rose from the dead. And he ascended into heaven. And he was seen at one particular point by 500 people. Unconvinced. Why? We're going to have to look at that next time. It's a profound lesson Jesus drives home. Lord, thank you for the way this story unfolds. It is, it's a contrast, it's unforgettable. And a shocking reversal of destinies beyond the grave. But it's explained so clearly that to imagine that this is all there is, this is the life you want to live. This is the one you want to love. And even to cover it over with a spiritual hypocrisy is to be the biggest fool of all. Lord, we're sorry that we're not as useful as we need to be because we hang on to the stuff here. We should be thinking about why you give us what you give us and what you want us to do with it. And how in enjoying it, we, we are tempted to trust in the security of it. And we ought to always be checking our hearts in that. Always meeting needs. Always looking outside of ourselves. Always setting aside what needs to be set aside. Always sacrificial. As a test of our hearts. So that we're always as useful as we need to be. And never clutching things that are merely going to burn up. And Lord, for anyone here who's toying with the scriptures and doesn't know you, Lord, open their eyes to the truth of what Jesus says here. May they not get away from the reality that they must believe what you say in your word because you wrote it and not put you on trial. We ask this for your glory's sake. Oh, Lord. Amen.